0: The upper left corner of the United States is full of stunning scenery. Beautiful mountains, raging rivers, breathtaking valleys, and so much more. But the Pacific Northwest is also known for something more sinister. This beautiful land also seems to be a breeding ground for serial killers and others who commit heinous acts. I was born in the Pacific Northwest and I've had a fascination with true crime since childhood. I'm here to tell you the true crime stories of the PNW. So grab your sweater and a cup of coffee. I'm your host, Emily, and this is the Upper Left Corner. Content warning. The following program may contain descriptions of violence and or sexual assault that may be upsetting to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Samuel and Linda set out for Washington State for a fresh start. At the time, there was an unfortunate loophole in Washington State law in which you did not need a medical degree to become licensed to practice medicine in some circumstances. And Linda was grandfathered in to being licensed to practice alternative medicine without any degrees. One key witness in the defense of Linda Hazard was Johan Haglund, and spouse to Daisy, mother of Ivar, who would go on to start Ivar's restaurant. Ivar's father told the courtroom that he had continued to trust Hazard following his wife's death, and that he himself and his seven-year-old son Ivar were still receiving treatments from Hazard. But not even a little time in the clink could stop Linda Hazard from practicing her so-called medicine. This week, I'll be telling you about female serial killer, Linda Hazard. But first, let's get our PNW town profile. Olala, Washington is a small, unincorporated community in Kitsap County, Washington. The area was settled in its early years by Norwegian and Scandinavian immigrants because of its similarities to their native countries. At one point, Olala was as large as the town of Port Orchard, which is the county seat of Kitsap County. As early as the 1860s, Olala developed a commerce center by way of its excellent seawater access. The Old Town port located by Olala Lagoon was made up of many business buildings, mostly on piers. And it was a bustling area for moving materials, goods, and people. But prior to the immigrants, the area was inhabited by the Salishan and Chinook people, who named the area Olala, which means berries. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, Olala was served by many steamships and was a vital port for getting goods and people into Washington State. However, that is all gone now. Once the Narrows Bridge was built, Olala was converted into a quiet town, one enjoyed by many commuters who prefer to live a quieter life while working in the nearby, bigger cities. And now, on to our story. This case has a little bit of something for everyone. It's a historical female serial killer. And before I get started, I not only want to give you a trigger warning, but I also wanted to clarify my stance on something. In this case, fasting is vilified, but I'm aware that there are many reasons to fast and there are health benefits to fasting when done right and also religious reasons to fast. So not all fasts are bad when done properly, but this story is about fasting being used for evil. So here we go. Linda Burfield was born in Carver County, Minnesota in 1867 to parents Susanna Neal and Montgomery Burfield as the oldest of seven children. She grew up in a mostly vegetarian household, which would be a precursor to some of her diet beliefs in her later years. She married Irwin Perry when she was just 18 years old, and the couple had two children named Roland and Flora. But in 1898, she claimed that Erwin abandoned her and the children, a claim that was disputed by those close to the couple. But either way, the divorce was finalized in 1902. She decided to pursue a career in medicine, although pursuing an education in the medical field was not part of her plans, as she was interested in alternative medicine. She decided to leave her children behind, abandoning them with her mother, and moved to Minneapolis, opening a small practice as Dr. Perry. Mind you, she was not a licensed physician. She began placing ads in newspapers around the world, touting her fasting treatment as the cure all for any ailment. And it began attracting patients from all over the world. One in particular was a woman named Gertrude Young, who was desperate for a cure for her partial paralysis that left one of her arms and one leg slack after a stroke that occurred in 1900. Her current physicians had been able to treat the pain associated with the paralysis, but were not able to get her mobility back. Dr. Perry offered Gertrude the fix to her mobility problems, a course of 40 days without food and only small amounts of approved liquids, such as a half a cup of tomato broth or a teaspoon of strained orange juice on occasion, as Dr. Perry would allow. After their first meeting, Gertrude was hopeful she had found the cure to her ailments, and she even reported her devotion to the program in the Minneapolis Tribune at the beginning of October and promised to report her success when the treatment ended. The fast began at Gertrude's apartment, who had a friend move in with her to monitor the treatment alongside Dr. Perry's nurses that would regularly check in on her progress. By November 12th, around 30 days into the fast, Gertrude was found sweating, shaking excessively, and vomiting a thick, dark matter. Dr. Perry's advice was to open the windows, despite the cold temperature, which actually made things even worse. Gertrude's friend was so concerned that she called on Gertrude's original doctor, Dr. Williams, who advised that she break the fast immediately by consuming bone and vegetable broth and other soft foods until her stomach could handle more. However, Gertrude insisted that she was going to finish the 40-day fast in hopes that she would be cured. Dr. Williams warned her that there was no way a fast could cure paralysis and that this fast was more than likely to end in death if she continued. Shortly thereafter, her skin turned yellow and she died on November 18th, the 39th day of the 40-day fast. As luck would have it, Dr. Williams also happened to be the Hennepin County coroner, and he opened an inquiry into Gertrude's death, ordering a postmortem by physicians at the University of Minnesota. The three doctors concluded that Gertrude had died of exhaustion caused by starvation and noted that she had very little blood left in her body. Dr. Williams added that just prior to starting the fast, Gertrude had been healthy enough to climb two flights of stairs to his office without any trouble and was, quote, as fat as butter when he saw her in September. He proclaimed that Gertrude was the victim of, quote, cruel and unnecessary quackery and advised that charges should be brought against Dr. Perry. Meanwhile, as officials looked into what charges could be filed in the case, Gertrude's loved ones noticed that her jewelry was missing. They accused Dr. Perry of taking the jewelry, to which she claimed that Gertrude had gifted all of her jewelry to her favorite nurse. But all of the nurses were questioned and had no idea what Dr. Perry was talking about. And this all played out in the newspaper as the gossip spread around the town that the doctor had not only killed a patient, but she was also a thief. At this point, Dr. Perry called a number of reporters to her office for a press conference in which she put on a show of innocence, claiming that traditional medicine professionals were intimidated by her non-traditional methods and that they were trying to get her to stop her practice because their patients would find greater success with her. She claimed to have treated 18 patients total and only one had died, and the other physicians were jealous of her success. In the end, the authorities conducting the inquest into Gertrude's death could not bring charges against Dr. Perry, reminding the public that Gertrude could have broken her fast and sought treatment elsewhere at any point prior to her death. Gertrude's jewelry was never recovered. The bad publicity just got worse when she met and married Samuel Christman Hazard on November 11, 1903. This was her second marriage and his third. Samuel was a West Point grad who had bungled a promising military career after misappropriating army funds. He was described as a drunk and a swindler. She began practicing medicine under her married name, Dr. Hazard. However, Samuel was already married to another woman in Minneapolis, and his name was actually Samuel Hargrave. His wife, Viva Hazard, filed bigamy charges against Samuel in January of 1904 and he was charged under the name Samuel Hargrave. Viva was the daughter of an Iowa senator who just so happened to be the president of First National Bank, and she had also been married twice before she wed Samuel. He was arrested and pled not guilty, and his bail was set at $3,500. And seeing as the hazards could not come up with the money, he was held in jail until his February 1st trial date. All of the legal troubles played out across the pages of the Minneapolis Tribune, and Dr. Hazard stood by her man. Viva told Samuel she would drop the bigamy charge if he would return to their marriage, but Samuel denied it, saying the only thing that mattered to him was his marriage to Dr. Hazard, and he was willing to go to prison for their love, which, I mean, is kind of sweet. But his bigamy trial began right on schedule. The ever-intense Dr. Hazard attended court every day, staring down witnesses, audibly admonishing attorneys and the judge when things didn't go their way, and confronting Viva and her supporters outside of the courthouse. But in the end, Samuel was found guilty and sentenced to two years in jail, which his attorney immediately appealed, asking for a new trial. A stay was granted as the appeal worked its way through the courts, and Samuel was a free man for a few weeks— during which he claimed to the papers that he was done with Linda Burfield Hazard and was planning his future with Viva. The appeal went all the way to the Minnesota Supreme Court, who denied the appeal and ordered Samuel to report to Stillwater Prison to serve his two-year sentence. He forbid Dr. Hazard from visiting the prison and returned his affection to Viva, who was working to get his sentence reduced. His attorneys were able to legally dissolve all of his marriages, and Viva and Samuel agreed to legally marry once he was released. And they made plans to move to Iowa to be near her parents, who were willing to provide them a home and a job for Samuel. But Dr. Hazard was not going to give up her man that easily, and wrote him every day. And after many months, Samuel allowed her to visit. No one knows what happened during that meeting. But when Samuel was released from Stillwater Prison in October of 1905, he walked straight into the arms of Dr. Hazard, while Viva was waiting for him at her boarding house a few blocks away, and was heartbroken when she heard the news. Samuel and Linda set out for Washington State for a fresh start. At the time, there was an unfortunate loophole in Washington State law in which you did not need a medical degree to become licensed to practice medicine in some circumstances, and Linda was grandfathered into being licensed to practice alternative medicine without any degrees. And she authored a book called The Science of Fasting in 1908. The Hazards built a sanitarium in Olala, Washington in Kitsap County that included a three-story retreat they dubbed Wilderness Heights. And as it grew, individual cabins for their guests were built. She began advertising in newspapers and magazines that were aimed at the wealthy all around the world, and it wasn't long before the wealthy sought Dr. Hazard's treatments to cure all kinds of ailments, as she had claimed her process could cure cirrhosis of the liver all the way to cancer and beyond. The locals of Olala started noticing skeletal-looking folks walking around the property of Wilderness Heights, and rumors began to swirl that things were not right. The local children were terrified of Linda Hazard, with her stern tone and rude mannerisms, And when they had to walk past the property, they often ran by as fast as they could. As the patients got thinner and sicker looking, many of the locals began referring to the sanitarium as starvation heights. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Blossom Boutique is a trendy online clothing boutique that specializes in clothes for women and children. Their graphic tees are on trend and quality made with relatable stains like their best-selling mom brain sweatshirt, all the way to a tie-dye dress for a night out. If you need a free Britney tee, Blossom Boutique has options. But not all of the graphic tees are for mom. You can also shop for the littles of your life. Fun graphic tees, cute sets, my favorite was the hooded tie-dye set for my daughter, and even swimwear. Go check out Blossom Boutique at BlossomBoutique.com. That's Blossom Boutique with an extra E at the end. And just for being an Upper Left Corner listener, you can use code CRIME15 to get an extra 15% off. I'll link the site and code in the show notes for you. Happy shopping. I've got a true crime podcast recommendation that I think Upper Left Corner listeners will love. Based on the Evidence is a mother-son podcasting duo that tackles interesting cases. It's tricky to mix humor with heavy topics, but they're able to pull it off nicely. It makes listening to gruesome details easier to handle. They cover cases with a conclusion, so I love that I can make predictions along the way and in the end have an answer whether the suspect was found guilty or innocent. This mom-son duo are relationship goals. It's fun to hear their interactions and personal stories you start to feel like you know them. You can listen to over 40 episodes of Based on the Evidence today on all major podcast platforms. And now back to the story. British sisters Claire and Dorothea Williamson were wealthy orphans who used their Sisley estate to travel the world visiting family members. When Claire was little, their father became very ill, and during his illness, their mother unexpectedly became pregnant with Dorothea. The stress of the pregnancy and caring for a dying husband took its toll on their mother. Two months after the birth of Dorothea, their father died at the age of 39, and their mother died shortly after of unknown causes. Though the girls would later tell people that they thought she died of a broken heart, as the parents had also lost two older daughters prior to Claire and Dorothea. The girls were raised by their nurse, Margaret Conway, who had been with the family since Claire was an infant. Once the girls were older, they traveled the world trying to find a location they would like to settle. They enjoyed Australia and Canada, especially British Columbia. Claire and Dorothea had always complained of ailments, though many of those around the sisters observed their issues seemed to be more blown out of proportion and dramatized than legit medical issues with one distant family member commenting that the girls could afford to be sick, so they were. Claire had been diagnosed with a tipped uterus that could be quite painful at times. Both sisters were unwed and over the age of 30, not that they hadn't had their admirers, but they seemed uninterested in those advances. Neither wore corsets, which was unusual for their time, though neither of them truly had a need for one as they kept thin frames. They were drawn to sanitariums and osteopathic medicine as they pursued a life of wellness. When they came to the United States for the first time, they happened upon an ad in a Seattle newspaper for the Wilderness Heights Sanitarium in Olala. Claire wrote to Dr. Hazard and overstated her and her sister's health issues, which were minimal, such as trouble sleeping, in order to get the attention of the doctor. Five days later, a package arrived for Claire at the hotel that contained information about fasting, including the book Dr. Hazard had authored. The gist of which was that the cause of ailments was impure blood, which was the result of impaired digestion, and the treatment was fasting. Claire was especially interested, and both sisters read through the book quickly. Claire wanted to seek the treatment immediately, but Dorothea was less sure about it. So they agreed to seek out an osteopath from California instead, as they had already planned to stay there during the winter to avoid the harsh PNW weather. The California osteopath was treating Claire for the previously diagnosed issue with her uterus, but the treatments were painful and not helping, leading Claire to write Dr. Hazard once more in November. Dr. Hazard wrote back stating that she would likely be able to cure her health issues through fasting, enemas, hot baths, and internal massage. She informed them that her sanitarium would be able to take them as patients within a few months. But in the meantime, she advised them to switch their diet to vegetable broths, and under no circumstances should they consume bread or anything with yeast, and to use enemas often until they could visit. The Williamson sisters preferred to keep to themselves. Though they had shared with several family members prior to deciding to head to the sanitarium that Claire would be attending school to become a kindergarten teacher in England, while Dorothea would head to visit relatives in Australia. However, they did not inform anyone when they changed their plans to stay in the U.S. and receive treatments from Dr. Hazard. Claire pushed for the treatments, and Dorothea resisted at first, though she ended up caving. The sisters were interested in the treatments prior to the sanitarium having openings, so they started their treatments from a rented apartment in Seattle in 1910. Within months of fasting, the women were weak and would often pass out. Dr. Hazard would stop in to check on them and help them with their treatments, which also included her beating on their bodies with her hands. She began to inquire about their financial affairs and who was responsible for their inheritances if something were to happen to them, and offered to help them by locking up all of their money, deeds, and jewelry in a safe at her house, to which the sisters denied several times. But Dr. Hazard was persistent, and 40 days into their fast, they both began to struggle mentally. In April of 1911, Dr. Hazard sent two ambulances to bring the girls to the Finnish sanitarium. At this point, the sisters could not walk, but were as light as children, so they were carried everywhere. They were loaded into the ambulances as a crowd that had gathered looked on. The ambulances didn't move, however. They sat for hours with the sisters going in and out of consciousness until a lawyer approached Dr. Hazard, who directed him to the ambulances. The sisters were under the impression that they were signing a letter to a family member in Australia but what they were really signing was a revision to her will, naming Dr. Hazard as the beneficiary of both of the sisters' sizable estates. Once they made it to the sanitarium, the sisters were separated and placed in separate cabins. And though they would see each other on occasion, Dr. Hazard would not let them be alone together, even though Claire had requested it. She also locked the mailbox and did not send letters out or give the sisters their incoming mail. After Claire had figured this out, she snuck a letter to their childhood nurse who was residing in Australia, and Margaret immediately made arrangements to come to America. But days before Margaret arrived after receiving the wire, Claire died at the age of 33 on Saturday, May 19th, 1911. By the time Margaret could make it from Australia, Claire had been dead for weeks. And no other family had been notified of Claire's passing, including the girl's uncle who lived in Portland and had no idea they were even still in the States, let alone that close to him and struggling. Dr. Hazard began influencing Dorothea with the idea that she was not mentally stable and kept telling her of the different ways to commit suicide. When the sister's uncle arrived from the funeral, he was appalled that he had not been notified sooner of Claire's passing and concerned when he saw the condition of of his other niece, Dorothea, who weighed less than 60 pounds, and was too weak to attend her sister's funeral service. He was shocked when he saw Claire's body at the funeral, as she looked healthy, unlike Dorothea, and he felt like the body at the funeral parlor did not resemble Claire. This sentiment was echoed by Dorothea and Margaret, who believed the body had been switched with an embalmed woman who was in much better condition than Claire. It was speculated that the funeral home was also on the Hazard's payroll. Margaret focused her attention on helping Dorothea, who was only eating two meals a day that consisted of a tomato broth, and she received an enema and hot bath daily at noon. Margaret would try to get her to eat a bit more, but Dorothea was set in her belief that this method was working, and she would strictly follow the fasting plan. Margaret began getting tricky to help Dorothea. The tomato broth was to be strained multiple times, and no seasoning was to be used. She began by straining the tomato broth less so it was less watered down, and worked her way up to adding things in. She had worked her way up to adding cream in, but it made Dorothea extremely sick as her stomach could not handle something so rich. She also had no ability to chew anymore, so broth was really the only option. Margaret observed her, Dr. Hazard, and her husband Sam, and could not quite figure out what drew the sisters to this place, and why Dorothea did not want to leave it. She inquired about why they had changed their will and placed all of their assets in the doctor and Sam's name, to which Dorothea replied that she hadn't. When presented with a letter, she stated that she had been told it was just to access some of the money out of their Canadian account to send to a family member in need, and she did not know that she was signing everything over. Margaret attempted to send a wire to Dorothea's uncle, asking for help to get her out of there, and once more he came immediately. However, Dr. Hazard wouldn't let her go until the $2,000 bill was paid in full, which was worked out through a payment plan, and the uncle and Margaret got her out of there, though they were missing many of Dorothea's belongings, including jewelry, money, and land deeds. But she was free, and weighing in at less than 60 pounds, it was just in the nick of time. The British consul got involved at this point, attempting to work with the hazards to force them to give Dorothea's belongings and help her get her estate back into her name, though the hazards gave up nothing. They would act like they were going to send things back and claim that they had sent it, but nothing ever arrived. The Kitsap County prosecutor did not seem interested in pursuing a case against the Hazards due to a lack of motivation and funds. Being a much smaller county, a giant trial like this would likely have financial repercussions. But the more the attorneys from the British consul learned, the more they pushed the county to press charges for the death of Claire. During their research, the British consul found two other Brits who had passed away under the care of Linda Hazard. An unknown caller informed them that Eugene Stanley Wakelin had supposedly took his own life via a gunshot, though the caller said she highly doubted that it was suicide. When the attorneys looked into Eugene's life, they found a document from probate court in which Linda Hazard had been awarded his large estate. It noted that under the list of expenses paid to shore up any unpaid bills from his life, Linda Hazard paid a ridiculously high amount to the funeral parlor, where her patients would go after death, solidifying the theory that they were on her payroll and willing to turn the other way to what was happening at what the locals called Starvation Heights. Eugene had been an aristocrat from Britain as the son of a lord, though he had been an outcast of the family as he believed in more homeopathic treatments and had lived in New Zealand for the years leading up to his life-ending trip to Starvation Heights. They also uncovered others who had died before, or around the time that the Williamson sisters were at Starvation Heights. Though there are not many details, here are the list of confirmed deaths. Edward Erdman was a civil engineer who died on March 29, 1911. Another Brit was John Ivan Flux, who came to America in the summer of 1910 in hopes of purchasing a ranch. He began his fast at Starvation Heights in December of the same year, and died February 10, 1911. Frank Southard was a highly regarded attorney out of Seattle. He entered the fast weighing at 230 pounds, but during his fast, he was reduced to 153 pounds. After resuming eating, he suffered from kidney problems, which led him to seek treatment from Linda Hazard once more. In the days before his death, he made a trip to the Cascades to a camp near the Skycomish River, where he suffered paralysis, and he died in the hospital shortly thereafter in May of 1911. Maud Whitney died on July 20th, 1910, after a fast. Blanche B. Tyndall died on June 18th, 1909, after a 28-day fast. Viola Heaton died on March 24th, 1909, after a fast. Daisy Maud Hagelin died on her birthday, after abstaining from food for 50 days. She was the mother of the founder of Ivar's Restaurant. Ida Wilcox died September 26, 1908, after a 47-day fast. C.A. Harrison, who was the publisher of the Alaskan Yukon magazine. Tyndall, Erdman, and Heaton had death certificates that were issued by medical doctors, deeming the cause of death as starvation. In the Whitney case, the death certificate was signed by Dr. Linda Hazard and her findings listed cause of death as chronic pancreatitis. Including Claire, the three Brits died within six months of each other, adding fuel to the fire of the British consul to take down Dr. Hazard. Sam and Linda Hazard were once again all over the papers, and again, not for good reasons. Doctor Hazard refuted the claims that she could be charged with Claire's murder by informing reporters that she planned to travel to Hong Kong to fast the Chinese royalties, where they were to pay her hundred dollars a day. This made authorities nervous as they now saw her as a possible flight risk. So on Saturday, August 5, 1911, she was arrested on the Alala property. However, she was released on bond shortly after without spending a night in jail, and she awaited her trial, which began the following year, and it was quite the public spectacle. Dr. Hazard's defense was that all of the witnesses were lying, and that the medical establishment had conspired against her out of jealousy, since she had cured patients they could not help. One key witness in the defense of Linda Hazard was Johan Haglund, and spouse to Daisy, mother of Ivar, who would go on to start Ivar's restaurant. Ivar's father told the courtroom that he had continued to trust Hazard following his wife's death and that he himself and his seven-year-old son, Ivar, were still receiving treatments from Hazard. She tried to influence witnesses, grandstanded for the newspaper, and it was also proved that she had forged Claire's will, as well as the last entry into her diary. She was convicted of manslaughter and sentenced to two to twenty years of hard labor but she was released after two years and was granted a full pardon by the governor. But not even a little time in the clink could stop Linda Hazard from practicing her so-called medicine. Immediately following her release, she moved to New Zealand and practiced as an osteopath and dietitian for five years, until she was eventually found guilty of practicing medicine without a license and fined. The following year, she moved back to Alala and built an even bigger sanitarium, avoiding the fact that her Washington license had been revoked by the state. However, she found herself a new loophole by calling the sanitarium a school of health. She continued to supervise fast there for 15 more years until the building burnt down in 1935. Three years later, after facing some of her own health issues, Linda Hazard died in 1938, during a self-imposed fast at the age of 71. Linda Hazard was responsible for the death of 18 people, a number that is likely much, much higher. And that is the case of Starvation Heights. This week's PNW wine that I paired with my True Crime is Silver Lake Winery 2019 Rosa Riesling from Rattlesnake Hills. Sweet honey and candied pineapple with a touch of spice gives the Riesling some complexity. My pairing recommendation would be some zesty Mexican food. Cheers and thanks for listening. In Upper Left Corner, a PNW true crime podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a five-star rating and review and share it with a friend. All of the sources for this episode are listed in the show notes and at upperleftpodcast.com. While you are there, check out the support victim causes tab to find the way you can help the victim's families or take a peek at my merch. You can follow me on Instagram at upperleftcornerpod. If you have a case suggestion or a PNW wine recommendation, please email me at upperleftpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for your support.